So we've been in this anniversary month together telling this story, and, and this was this parallels our, our first five weeks together in 2014, this story of God that we find in Scripture, the story that we're called and included into, and we, we tell it in a very particular way. There's a lot of different ways to tell this story about God. Some of us grew up with some sort of like elevator pitch um, to tell God's story, the gospel, and it, it, many times those sorts of kind of schemas um, focus primarily on sin and drive us straight into the arms of Jesus, normally across some big chasm um, with a cross, and you like jump over the cross beam on the cross. But there's also other ways to tell this story. Um, uh, things like uh, maybe a, a more narrative, like the story of creation and fall and then redemption and restoration, and, and I like that. I think that's, that, that's an improvement because at least we start with God's good creation. But I think this, maybe the short side of this, and you'd think Bible publishers would, would be on to why this is a short side because you basically leave out everything from Genesis 3 or maybe Genesis 12, because after, after the fall, there's kind of all the things that start to unravel, all the way to Matthew 1, when you jump from fall to redemption, right? So that's like those two blue marks, if you can see them. In this Bible, approximately page 33 to 100, or 1,791. So that's a 1,758-page hole in our story from Genesis 12 to Matthew 1 with a little bit of foreshadowing sprinkled in, like Isaiah, the things we read at Advent, right? But my question there, where is Israel in all this? Who are the prophets? Why Jesus? These should be questions if, if, if you step out of the, the faith and the story that you inherit should, should kind of bug you in the way we tell our story. For as beautiful and true and comprehensive as this arc is, it runs the risk of rushing us through the process and making us feel like we, we have to do this alone. That each of us is kind of responsible for progressing through these steps of fall to salvation and restoration. It's also tempting sometimes when you tell the story, we, we, we don't tell it as so much a story, but kind of a guiding theme. Things like love and liberation. And I think these are really helpful lenses to read our Bibles with, but I'm not sure they really tell the whole story either. It's just really hard to get um, particular about these sorts of images like love and liberation. Like what are they and, and what do they mean? And, and those things can be so different and so contradictory for so many people. So today I want to focus, I want to like to focus, like fix our eyes, focus our eyes and our imaginations on community. When you tell the story, um, sorry for the C's, I'm a preacher, alliteration happens, but we go from, <laughs> from creation to corruption to the formation of a community into the cross and new creation. New creation plays by different rules, right? So we're smack dab in the middle of the story at the calling and formation of a community. I'm going to invite Alex 
Burchett to come and read our passage from Genesis 22. After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham answered, I'm here. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burned offering there on one of the mountains that I will show you. Abraham got up early in the morning, harnessed his donkey, and took two of his young men with him together with his son Isaac. He split the wood for the entirely burned offering, set out, and went to the place that God had described to him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at the distance. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will walk up there, worship, and then come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the entirely burned offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took the fire and the knife in his hand, and the two of them walked together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? Abraham said, I'm here, my son. Isaac said, here's the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the entirely burned offering? Abraham said, the lamb for the entirely burned offering? God will see it to you, my son. The two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place God had described to him. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, I'm here. The messenger said, don't stretch out your hand against the young man and don't do anything to him. I know that you, were, that you revere God and didn't hold back your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a single ram caught by its horns in the dense underbrush. Abraham went over, took the ram, and offered it as an entirely burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place the Lord Sees. That is the reason people say today, on this mountain the Lord is seen. The Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I give my word as the Lord that because you did this and you didn't hold back your son, your only son, I will bless you richly and I will give you countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and as the grains of sand on the seashore. They will conquer their enemies' cities. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants, because you obeyed me. Thanks, Alex. So in light of the fall, and if we remember back last week, the fall is kind of this obscuring of God's image in humanity. It's this cracked icon that is misfiring as it reflects God's, uh, God's um, uh, care towards creation and creation's praise back to God. Now, all the wicked problems that flow from this corruption through creation, especially harming the most vulnerable parts of creation. God begins the work of redemption 
by calling a people. This is to be a countercultural community of discipleship, the primary addressee of God's imperatives. Which means when God speaks, things happen. And God primarily speaks to God's people. We see this in our passage known as the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. God speaks. God's been speaking. Speaking creation into being, calling humanity made in God's image very good. God's been speaking a blessing on the rest of the seventh day. When amidst all this filling activity, creation teeming, God continues to still make room to open up space even as he fills space. Of course, God also called to Adam, if we remember that story. God speaks to Adam. And for the first time, there wasn't an answer. Humanity walked hand in hand with another in God's place, and there was no reply. Their transparent, unashamed communication and communion, God and Adam and Eve, had been threatened. They had become vulnerable, and so had all of the rest of creation, vulnerable to manipulation and distortion, vulnerable to scarcity and toil, vulnerable to pain and death. And now that vulnerability is borne by Abraham. If we remember the story, in 10 chapters earlier in the story, God also spoke to Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram. He was this moon worshiper from Ur. And it's hard for us to remember that before there was Israel, God's people, there was no people. <laughs> like this, this wasn't a thing. It takes kind of us to suspend our imaginations to, to remember that way. God continues to speak things into existence, so God speaks a people into existence. So Ab Abraham underwent a sea change. He began to know God. He was, as part of that knowing, his life actually got more difficult. It got more confusing. It got much stranger. Speaking of the elevator pitches earlier, that's hardly a great evangelism pitch, right? God loves you and has a difficult, confusing, strange plan for your life, right? This is Abraham's story. His name even changed from Abram to Abraham. This is significant. It, it went from something as lofty as exalted father to something as a little harder to conceive as the father of many nations, right? His his name changed and so did his mission. But Abraham responds when God calls and says, here I am. Three times. First to God and then to Isaac and then to the Lord's messenger. And Abraham shows us what it means to be present and attentive to what God is up to even when it confounds him. Speaking of being confounded by the story, I distinctly remember, every time I read this story or about Abraham, I distinctly remember sitting in a second grade religion class at Our Lady of Lords Catholic School in Daytona Beach, Florida, and memorizing and reciting this Abrahamic covenant. Like, that was a thing we did. That It was really important to the nun that was in charge, that we 
Remember, look up to the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many children you'll have. It's a weird thing for second graders, right? <coughs> but I'm thankful for that lesson and for the ways that those words are kind of like embedded into my theological imagination, even when I didn't, wasn't thinking about theological imaginations. Because a nun decided it was important that God called a people unto God's self. And, and through the most surprising and even laughable circumstances, like two old, barren pagans were now the start of God's rescue plan for all of creation. Abraham and Sarah became the modern potter familias for the world to come. It's a laughable plan, so it's a little bit of a relief that Sarah actually LOLs, like when she gets the plan from Abraham. And this is something my wife Rachel would do if I told her some plan like this, right? When she first heard it, she laughed, and that's why Isaac's name actually means son of laughter. It's perfect. It's wonderful. It's this ridiculous blessing that would come to be a blessing for blessing. Abraham and Sarah would be kind of the narrow end of the wedge, whereas Adam and Eve kind of attempted to grasp at and control and bottleneck God's blessing. Abraham and Sarah would open it up to the world. I hope you're starting to get the idea. God's people have always been a group that has been vulnerable, surprising, and even laughable. This should make you feel kind of good about yourself, unless, of course, you have it all together and are impressive and well-adjusted. Because your unlikeliness makes you a prime candidate to be drafted into God's healing work. Just because you're silly, doesn't make any sense, 90 years old without any kids, God's going to make something happen. But here's where you might object that this story in Genesis 22 could be considered part of God's healing work. After all, this story is brutal. I could never name my kid Isaac after reading this story. Isn't it just some ghastly, monstrous picture of a God who would call for the death of a child? I don't want anything to do with a God like that. If that bothers you, good, it should it bothered most of the people I've talked to about this passage. It's one of those things that you sidle up to someone and, be, and they say, what are you preaching on? And you say Genesis 22 and they kind of like put some distance, <laughs> you know, right? Like I love the chance to get to read this passage slowly with our steering group and our worship planning group this week. It's really a joy to read God's word with such a variety of careful and caring people whom the Spirit uses to open up insights and possibilities in this alive and active text, right? I'm really indebted to them for their great questions and beautiful insights, and that's kind of my disclaimer, so I'm not plagiarizing them, even though I kind of am, right? This is a community effort. I'm, I'm just talking it out. So in our, in our story in Genesis 22, we start with these scant details up front. Uh, and then the, it makes us kind of fill in the blanks. And then the narrative kind of bends and shapes time. And there's, there's a lot of time, and then it, it compresses really fast, and it's a, a close-up, and time seems to almost stand still. We're drawn into the emotional force of this scene. Isaac's 
life is on the line here. But even more than that, like we can't shortchange how tragic and real that is, but there's even higher stakes than just, than just Isaac's life, just in, in quotations, right? The promise of a community, the promise of the whole people of God is at stake. Either way, no matter what Abraham does, if Abraham is faithful to God or if Abraham is not faithful to God, God's people are at stake. And it doesn't seem like there's going to be a, there could be a possible uh, good outcome here. You see, as precarious and unbelievable as the idea of an octogenarian Abraham becoming the father of many nations, the death of Isaac would chop that family tree down at the root. But if God can't trust Abraham, God, God trusting Abraham, like Abraham hasn't been the most trustworthy covenant partner up until this point. Like we remember it's him kind of selling out Sarah in Egypt or the whole Hagar Ishmael thing on trying to make this happen, make something happen, even with good intentions. If God can't trust Abraham, is there really much of a point in them being covenant partners? Doesn't that already mess with the possibility of this covenant working? So God makes it explicit what the expectation is. There's this kind of funneling effect happening there when God talks to Abraham. Take your son, kind of the wide end of the cone. Abraham would say, which one? I have Ishmael over there. Your only son, you know, the one that's part of the covenant, whom you love along with Sarah, Isaac. <laughs> no, no wriggling out of this. Our translation is particularly brutal in repeatedly reminding us there was, this was no like wave offering or minor oblation. This was total. It says an entirely burnt offering. Offer your son an in, as an entirely burnt offering. This was total. So then from there we read this excruciating sequence of events. This is no crime of passion from Abraham. Abraham slowly preps the wood, loads the donkey, begins the journey. Maybe this kind of foreshadows in long form the sort of wrestling that Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, also known as Israel, would stubbornly participate in through the night and the dawn kind of marked the end of that stalemate but the beginning of a lifelong limp. This is, this is to be in covenant with God is to embark on a journey that will require all of us. It's total. In fact, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and told him, kind of revealed God's self to him and said, I am El Shaddai. Walk with me and be trustworthy. Walk with me and be trustworthy. El Shaddai meaning the Lord provides or the Lord will see to it. So walk with me. Give me your whole heart. Let me be able to trust you is what God's saying to Abraham. So Abraham and Isaac walk and walk and they get closer to Moriah. I can't help but kind of get the same sense of dread 
um, that I got when I read, or there's a movie also that's, that's really good, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. You have this father and son, this boy with his dad carrying the fire in that book into this uncertain suffering future. And right, <coughs> right at the moment, right at the moment when Abraham reaches out his hand, the angel of the Lord intervenes. And Abraham answers again, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here is his refrain to God. That same availability which embarked on such an impossibly conflicted mission now receives God's provision, God's intervention, a ram in a thicket in the place of his son, his only son, in whom he did not hold back. All this we might think Abraham had in the back of his head. He was subtly hoping for this from the get-go. We have that little verse that, said that when Abraham's talking with God initially, he says, the boy and I will walk up there, we'll worship, and then we'll come back to you. <laughs> Maybe he was trying to embed that message to God, right? But they did. And so they will. <laughs> Through this near tragedy, Abraham the moon worshiper from Ur walks with God and starts to unlearn and relearn what this God is like. You see, like other people that he knew who mess around with other gods, he used to think that God might only and brutally require sacrifice. But now he's learning that the heart of sacrifice is actually what God is providing not what he's providing. He's shifting from a God who requires sacrifice to a God who makes sacrifice. As one theologian put it, sacrifice does not consist in a giving of what God could not have without us. Sacrifice consists in our becoming totally receptive and letting ourselves be taken completely over by God. Letting God act on us. That is sacrifice. In this form of worship, human achievements are not placed before God. On the contrary, it consists of man letting himself be endowed with gifts. So Abraham receives this gift in place of his son, who is also a gift. This is a big shift. This is a big shift for him, for us, from our performance towards God or in front of God, which is exhausting and frankly impossible, to a life in and with God. From This is a shift from the kind of God bent on receiving, lowercase g, to the God of creation and recreation who gives to the point of excess, who has made all of creation out of God's overflowing life. This is the sort of life in God which will cost you everything and expect all of you, but it's also paid the price of admission and will give you everything you need along the way. Abraham and Isaac have seen, they've benefited from, they've known that there is no other way than to risk it all and to be completely wholehearted in their walk with God. I'm El Shaddai, walk with me and be wholehearted. 
And this is exactly what mirrors the God who risked it all and is wholehearted towards all creation through Abraham. God is, God, God is assuming that posture and Abraham is learning that posture, learning those steps. They've experienced that the Lord has seen to it. So they name the place that way. It's an amazing um, practice for them. They, they, they learn something about God and so they name the place where they learned what they learned. So that everyone that then encounters that place now knows it as the mountain on which the Lord is seen. <laughs> the Lord is seen to it. This is the mountain on which the Lord is seen. Do you notice there's a, like an important little trans- transition here from the active to the passive voice? It's through the provision of the Lord that in Abraham and Isaac's participation and reception of that gift that the Lord now shows off that attentive care to the world. The Lord's seen to it, so now the Lord is seen. More broadly, God's people become the hinge in this, the prime medium for this witness to the world. More broadly, God's, you know, um, uh, Ellen Davis says about this, that God has chosen Abraham to be a kind of prism. Have you ever seen a prism? Your kids mess with these prisms and put it on the windowsill and you see white light come in and it's split out into every color. Roy G. Biv, right? So God's people are to be a kind of prism. They catch the light of God's blessing and diffuse it into every corner of a sin-darkened world. They, we, are God's tested and provided for people. We're prototypes for those who walk with God and invite others into that calling this original calling. Do you see how precarious all of this is? (laughs) That God would depend on us in any way? Do you see how absurd that makes any sort of arrogance and pride and boasting or coercive force from God's people? The only source of our righteousness, our being right, is our inclusion by God. That we've been spoken into God's plan by God. Nothing we did or nothing we could do, only the Lord who sees to it. This is why um, in that 1,700 plus words, uh, pages in the middle of our Bible, this is why we get these, these kind of tent poles of people who witness to this, one of whom is David. <laughs> David, for all his faults and deep and serious sin, becomes much more the paradigm of God's heart in this world, a man after God's own heart, than his wise, extravagant, ambitious son Solomon. David walked in sorrow with God. David cried out at the loss of his treacherous son Absalom. David, like Abraham, knew God in the vulnerable way where it looked like it it might actually all really just fall apart. It might be over. And and (coughs) it it really, we we can also see this this story uh, in other characters. Like, this is the love of Ruth in our Bibles. I I know Gathering has has, uh, learned about Ruth this summer. Ruth, this Moabite woman, Abraham from Ur, whose covenantal love for her mother-in-law, Naomi, 
kind of walks inside of God's hope through Abraham. Ruth says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, ever be it severely, if even death separates you and I. Ruth knows this kind of love, this kind of covenant. It's this vulnerable hope, which gets then transformed in Jesus. There's this legacy, and and we get a little hint of that legacy when we read the genealogy that most of us skip over at Christmas time. We we get to see some of these characters. It's transformed in Jesus, making way not for the abandonment or the abolition of God's people, Israel, but for their fulfillment, for Israel's fruition. Read Paul on this, that in Jesus, God is grafting in the nations, as abundant as the sand and the stars, joined in this family, made through fragile trust and costly fidelity. Consider then, um, and, and we considered this four years ago when we, when we first started to tell the story, consider then also Peter's testimony. Peter's a little different. He's, he's hardly that fragile, vulnerable character. Peter, his name is The Rock, <laughs> right? Peter has, has to unlearn more, and maybe that's, maybe you identify w- with that, that rather than being um, uh, built up and in, 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 uh, established by God, you need to be torn down and then rebuilt in a, in a different way. Peter writes to a young church, and he urges them to be what they already are, what they've been called to be. He asks them to shun any other identity and know that they are a people. Capital P, first and foremost. God's people. Who, once they were not a people, but now they're the people of God. Once they had not received mercy, and now they have received mercy. You see, this is all inside of that Mariah story, where the vulnerable people almost became a no people. (laughs) Again. He tells them that that's what they are. That's what we are. He says, you're a chosen people. So I pray that Oak Church, that the Gathering Church remembers this kind of choosing that God does with Abraham. The kind that Jesus did in the Beatitudes where, where a blessing is offered to the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death in order to be a blessing in the world. That, w- that we're midstream in God's blessing, not the end point, not the beginning. It doesn't rely on us and it doesn't end with us. That this Election is another word for it, is, is less like, um, like picking teams for dodgeball, and it's more like the metal filings on a magnet, where, where more and more people are attracted and included in what God's doing. There's always room for others and more to be blessed by God and to participate in that blessing. He also says that, that we're a royal priesthood. So I pray that Oak Church, pray that the Gathering Church understands that being related to a king means that we've been made royalty by association. Not by merit, by association. That even in our deepest weakness, we can know and feel, in the words of Jim Smith, that I am a child of God, one in whom Christ dwells, and I'm living in an unshakable kingdom of God. 
the unshakable kingdom of God as royalty. I pray that we'll understand that God's people are called also priests. Priests, we, we don't walk around with tab collars on, but we're priests because we minister to each other. I, I got to be a part of Nate and Anna's wedding a couple weeks ago. Welcome back. And they had this whole long grocery list of each other's in the New Testament. All these things that we are to be for and with each other. So we're priests because we minister to each other. We bring people to God. We're kind of the go-betweens, that prism reflecting God's light towards creation, but also gathering up creation's praises and offering it back to God. We facilitate forgiveness and we act as agents of reconciliation. I pray that we might be really good at setting up altars in the world that, reminds, uh, that remind ourselves and others about this Lord who we've encountered that's seen to it, that continues to provide for us in surprising ways when we offer all of ourselves to God. Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God, God's possession. I pray that Oak Church, Gathering Church, that we're we know that we're set apart, not just from the world, but for God's purposes in the world. We belong to a God who still speaks and calls and has the courage to trust us to partner in the healing of the world. A God whose holiness is most truly known in vulnerability, not in might, but in risk. Declaring the praises of God who brought you out of darkness into God's marvelous light. I pray that our churches might be a place where we experience and expect and express transformation. That we have testimonies. Normal people offering normal words of the struggle in the precariat, like how precarious it is to know and follow God. Remember, it might make your life harder and weirder to know God. But, but we should talk about that. And we should also talk about the tales of how God's fidelity begets our own. Like bring, God's faithfulness brings forth our faithfulness. So I, I don't really have a good ending here. It's more of an ellipsis, right? I had originally conceived this passage for the sermon as kind of the in-between of this week and next week, where this week we talk about community, next week we talk about the cross, these two focal points. But as I dug further and further into the resources, mostly in the dark by candlelight this week, um, and as I listened more and more from local and um, scholars and commentators, like a little corner of the great cloud of witnesses wandering around in this story, I began to realize that the, our, our Genesis 22 story of Mariah, the Akedah, is not between these two things. Like, it's exactly both of these images kind of transposed on top of each other at the same time. So for that reason, we'll also spend time in this text next week <laughs> and from a little bit of a different angle. There's so many angles to look at. Um, you you kind of hold it up and look at another aspect. I hope you'll also spend some time this week with this text and, and, and put yourself um, in God's shoes, put yourself in Abraham's shoes, put yourself in Isaac's shoes, even put yourself in, in Sarah's shoes. She's not in our text. Um, and think about that. 